These are the true stories of farmers, <coughs> conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land. This is Ron Cruz. I am in Washington, D.C. today. It's February 10th, 2016. And I have the privilege right now to interview Amy Little. She today serves as policy director for the Northeast Sustainable Ag Working Group, but has had a long history of working as an organizer in the sustainable ag and sustainable food movement. So I'd like to start these interviews with a uh, hearing all about what you got into it. I mean, all the way back to your childhood. Uh, why did you get interested in sustainable ag and, and food? And where did you grow up? Where did you get your education? So take off with that. Okay. Uh, well, my interest in sustainable agriculture actually came through my rebellious nature. I always had a very rebellious nature. I grew up in a non-religious household, but very uh, strong values of equality, uh, love of nature, um, and service to humanity and the importance of community. And so, <clears throat> and being very rebellious, um, I, in my teens, I uh, ended up leaving school, high school, to go and protest. And um, I got very involved in doing nonviolent civil disobedience. And about the war in Vietnam? I uh, know. Uh, we, uh, that I was um, a little bit young. I went yeah. during, I was, that was when I was in my early teens, but very exposed to it. My house, we were, you know, my dad cried for days when King was shot, and the um, every day we had the news on the you know the shootings at Kent State and all of that was very high in my family in terms of what we we need to be aware of what's going on and we have to do something about it. So having a rebellious nature, um, being a teenager. That meant doing things that might not be so great for me, um, but it was finding activism that gave me the focus I needed. And so I became very focused on being an activist and I went to college, uh, worked on the ERA amendment, um, was fighting for solar energy issues in uh, New Hampshire and as a student was um very active in alternative energy issues and protesting nuclear power plants. And uh, I mean, even before I was, when I was still a minor, I was doing civil disobedience and there were times when we would be arrested sitting in front of steamrollers that were going to do the new plants. And I, because I was a minor, I didn't have to stay in jail. So I'd go and get some of the press together and do some stuff. So anyhow, I became very ra radicalized in the, civil disobedience work that I did. And um, following college, um, you go to college, I went to college at a small uh, university in New Hampshire called Franklin Pierce College. Um, being that I had dropped out of high school, I didn't have a lot of choices about where to go. To college. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a great time there. I had great uh, radical professors that talked about socialism, democratic socialism and but it did give me a good 
base there in New Hampshire to fight the Seabrook new plan. Then, you know, from then on, everything was a base for making social change. <laughs> um, anyhow, I, when I finished college, um, you know, I went from being a plucked out of, plucking out of high school because I basically dropped out to uh, graduating summa cum laude and getting a triple major in history and political science and philosophy. So I started, I joined um, the Citizen Labor Energy Coalition as an organizer, and I canvassed all over the country going toward a door on local issues with citizen action and clean water action um, and training people to do this and then training organizers to mix uh, issues with action in terms of uh, grassroots lobbying. So we would get grassroots uh, uh, participation. And that uh, became more of how do we take this issue work into the electoral arena? We started doing a lot more in elections. And after a few years, I was on the national staff of Citizen Action and Clean Water Action and helping state organizations identify strategic ways to win on state issues, local issues, and we also worked on some national issues together. Uh, Superfund, the uh, federal EPA program that requires polluters to pay for their cleanup and to protect water supplies. Um, one of the, uh, I just a story about an action we had, we had all over the country. This is with John O'Connor, who was the uh, who was Carolyn Mugar's husband. He was running the uh, national toxics campaign, and she was starting Farm Aid. Um, and we had collected water samples all over the country and had these press conferences with people bringing their their polluted tap water to these trucks. And we had this thing called the Super Drive for Superfund, and they all drove to the Capitol, and we. Um, that was when Jim Florio introduced the Superfund legislation, uh, which ended up winning the super. I was anyhow. That was the kind of organizing I was doing with this action. And um, did you? Can I ask? Did you yeah. get any training in organizing? You know, I've talked to a number of people that are organized that have been so part of the movement. Yes, uh, lots of you, training, lots and lots of training. In fact. I want to get back to sort of the Midwest Academy style organizer training. But before that, I when I was working with the Citizen Labor Energy Coalition, we had an association of organizers and canvassers where we were sort of writing contracts for staff and citizen action groups, not just citizen action with a capital CNA, but other groups, too. We did this with NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League. We did this with um, some labor groups that were working on particular plant closing legislation and things like that. Um, there was lots of environmental groups we contracted with. It. And the, what during, with this outfit, our whole reason for being was training organizers and people in terms of not just external strategy, but how do people work together? Um, how do you build coalitions? You know, how do you do the grassroots and the grass tops? Um, how do you mentor others? We always would say each one teach one. And we really took that to heart. And at the time, I, my two big mentors were Heather Booth, 
uh, and Barbara Helmick and Heather. Um, most people who are know about what goes on in the activist world know Heather. She was uh, one of the key people and SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, very active in unions. Um, she um, was one of the kitchen cabinets for Barack Obama. Um, very astute woman. So she's a big mentor to me. And this woman, Barbara Helmick, who had, was one of the leading gay rights activists um, during, you know, the later part of the century. And we were really the first professional association to, to negotiate for um, health benefits for domestic partners. We're really on the cutting edge of having great advocacy organizations have professional staff so that people could be really working on this stuff and making a living. We're fighting for, you know, work, living, working, living wages and working conditions. And there we were doing it for these activist groups. Um, so. That was part of the training. Part of that was we taught people to every day do training. Every day bring a new tool out of the toolbox and try and use it. Um, so, and then getting to the academy, kind of Midwest Academy. Heather Booth started Midwest Academy. And in, um, you know, the 70s and 80s, um, there was a lot of training we did, and the, a lot of that was great. It was about power relationships, how to, and, you know, we empowered a lot of people on how to come up, up against the city council, you know, how to push through a bill, either on the local or the state level. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of training on the national stuff, but Citizen Action was doing that alongside Midwest Academy. So um, I... You know, a lot of that was the Saul Linsky style stuff, but it's evolved over the years. You know, um, later on, after uh, I left that world, I was hired for the National Campaign for Sustainable Agriculture, which actually was I was hired for the dialogue. And that, um, that, that was what, late 80s, right? Early 80s. Early. Yes. Yeah. And I'm just getting back to the training question, yeah. though. Um, after that, I went on to work as a partner with Citizen Action and the Midwest Academy to do a lot more electoral training. And that's when I went on to do uh, work on presidential races. I worked on the Gore. This is the non-coordinated campaigns doing um, civic engagement, voter registration, turnout. Um, and what we called roundtables is getting the various non-coordinated interest groups who wanted uh, to win in a democratic election, wanted to win. So we would bring those roundtables together and make sure that we had the basis, the basis covered for either um, voter registration or turnout or um issue oriented memberships like citizen action would have a membership and we would tie an issue like they those members would come in on say healthcare issues is a big issue we worked on um energy issues and so there was a lot of way of tying those issues to a candidate in an uncoordinated way so we did a lot of that 
Um, so just back to me and the training piece, we kept doing a lot of training and I had 11 states that I was responsible for in the uh, carry and the carry cycle. Um, and then, um, so then beyond that, um, I worked um, in the field in Ohio for Obama. I ran something called, um, I was the field director for something called Vote Today Ohio, where we did the early voter program for Obama in Ohio. And um, there's a little story, a little backstory. Uh, I was just like Shirley Sherrod. I got blogged about, we had 100% turnout before election day in our targeted districts in Ohio. And that was amazing. I mean, we had 100% of this Somali community in Ohio, which is huge, had voted. 100% turnout. And this is before election day. Yeah. Um, The Republican National Committee had hired a blogger uh, in Pennsylvania to do a lot of what they do, which is raise questions about people who are working. They thought Ohio would be... Uh, you know, McCain and Obama were in a dead heat. They thought it'd be close and we need to, uh, you know, do something to throw a wrench in it. And they had picked, um, at the time, ACORN uh, had been doing amazing work on voter registration and turnout and voter education on issues of homelessness and poverty and engaged, you know, uh, access and, um, so because they were on the roundtables, I had put together, you know, the coalition work. Um, I had been named because I was currently an advisor to a congressman person. So I had done, I had run his election. This is, I'm skipping around, but anyhow, I don't know how I got to that. But so what? yeah, I missed a few elections in there. When I was with Citizen Action, I worked on the Wellstone race Yes, I canvassed, uh, brought Paul Wellstone door to door in Minnesota. That was so fun. I spent a lot of time in Minnesota. I loved it. And I worked on the Harkin race and uh, Lautenberg. And I went out and did some stuff on the boxer race. And um, yes, that was so fun working on all those different elections. Anyhow, uh, the blog thing happened. And um, And so what happened exactly with the blog? Oh, well... The blogger had accused me of um, voter fraud with and the same thing as what was happening with Acorn. And um, it got picked up. The blog got picked up by Fox News in the Hudson Valley, where I was the senior advisor to the congressman uh, there. And um, somebody had quoted the blogger. Uh, and that got picked up as news. Uh, it really wasn't news. It was a fabricated thing. And so, I mean, to make a long story short, the county prosecutor back in Ohio needed to stick us with something. So um, he found something to stick us with. And But the real upshot is we won Ohio by a <laughs> <laughs> and um you know that was a I, I learned so much doing that it was a great campaign working with barack obama was amazing i had already when he was a senator 
Um, he was he had helped with some of the uh, voter registration. We had really targeted the African American vote and Latina vote um, in uh, a number of states in the Midwest. And he he came out and worked with us on that. Uh, it was a great thing. I, I I got to be a partner with him as a senator, and what, uh, it was amazing to then go work and get him elected as president. <laughs> so uh, following that, I came back to work. Um, I mean, I missed a few things in there, a bunch of elections I worked on that were crazy, really fun. Um, but um, I came back to work in the sustainable ag, and that was right at the um, – just following the merger of the National Campaign for Sustainable Agriculture and SAC, the Sustainable Ag Coalition, and that merger is what created NSAC. Right, and I and, think that happened around 2008, 2009. Yeah, I remember the yep. yes. It happened while I was working on the Obama race, so I was not present during that changeover. But right after the changeover happened, um, NSAC hired me to do a little bit of training, um, and I was back in the sustainable ag world again, very happily, where um, working on these issues. I, I, so what for me, and if I look at the things that have always gotten me the most motivated and excited and understanding strategically how to build power is the whole coalition, like multi-interest, multi-issue. You know, we're not going to go about making change one issue at a time. It's not just peace. Uh, it's not just prosperity. Uh, it's not just farmer viability. It's not just, you know, saving the planet from our destructive forces. It's bringing it all together and trying to make power changes. So it's huge. <laughs> Well, I'd like to go back then now to the to the national dialogue, kind of when you really got into the Aggie side of it yes. the, and the work you did in pulling the campaign together with the respective, kind of describe the landscape there and what the dialogue was, because I really haven't gotten a lot of people talk very much about right. that, so that would right. be great. Well, it was uh, very exciting. The, the, um, when I was hired... Um, I was hired by a group <laughs> of folks that include it was Ferd, Chuck Hassebrook, Lonnie, yeah, and uh, uh, I don't know. There was a team, but the interview, oh, Hal Hamilton at Community Farm Alliance in Kentucky at the time, um, and Tim. I can't remember his last name. He was with the uh, Dairy Farmers Organization, part of National Family Farm Coalition. Yeah. So they had done a search and they have got a lot of people who knew agriculture. And I didn't know ag policy hardly at all. I mean, I had when I was with Citizen Action, we had done some you know, foreclosure, you know, panty auctions and things like that. But, you know, my heart is really into agriculture. But I didn't know much about policy, but I remember clearly in the interview, Chuck kept getting at, well, how do you build power? How do you build power? And like, you know, okay, so I can learn the ag issues. 
I love that. I love what I know about him. But here's how you build. Here's what. Here's the way to build power. And so uh, I hope that answers your question. But um, so the dialogue. So they hired me, and um, there was this dialogue, and I'm like, dialogue. That's like a non-starter. You know, we can all dialogue. But we quickly did this focus of we're going to there was a little small amount of money to have meetings. And quickly the focus became what a dialogue can do. And that was to bring different voices together. And it was so exciting. It was like in many areas, MSOG had been very good at this. Um, the SOGs, the kernel of the SOGs had just begun, um, and they wanted to do this. But it was a way to bring the farmers and the environmentals together to agree that stewardship is what farming right. is about. Right. And, um, and getting the environmentalists to be partners with the farmers. We knew, I mean, farmers always at the heart of what we were doing. We knew we had to broaden that base right. for one thing. but we. We also had to be truth to power, which was that farmers do, they are environmentalists, they do care about the environment. So, and then there was also the, uh, lo the food interests, uh, nutrition, not so much nutrition, but this, at the time, it was more uh, food quality. You know, we have to start thinking about like um, the problem of food insecurity. So we, We'd bring some of those folks in, um, and um, so the so the, it was extremely exciting. We have this pot of money, and we have these people who want to have figure out what is what are the common things we can do. So we had these dialogues around the country, and I remember going to I like looking at the picture how we're going to build a farm bill campaign. It's really I was hired to do a farm bill campaign. This is the way I saw it. We had to do this farmville campaign, and these are the tools. It's the dialogue, and then we're going to have an issue agenda, and then we're going to, like, do some advocacy. Um, and some people thought, well, the dialogue is so that we learn from each other. And, but I think part of why they hired me was because I wanted to go and, like, what's the action? What's the dialogue going to lead to? So I went in the dialogue. I went around the country. There's a, you know, we had a couple of year process. We had dialogues. Then we had a big national meeting. And then we had more dialogues. And then we did put a platform together. And then we started working the platform. But the dialogues were amazing. I, we, it wasn't just me. Um, but starting out, I went around the country with Chuck and Ferd and the MSOG folks behind me um, setting up these dialogues. And we were fortunate that the um, this thing that we call the National, uh, Agri the Sustain National Sustainable Agriculture Coordinating Council. Those are the folks that hired me. They had gotten the money to hire me and they had raised the money for the dialogue, um, which, and that thing quickly dissolved once we were ready to have a campaign. But I went around the country, sometimes with Chuck, sometimes with Ferd. Um, pretty soon it became with SOG organizers, whoever was around on a local level that we could work with. 
And it was so great. The SOGs were like, I mean, aside from MSOG, the other SOGs, Northeast SOG, the Intermountain West SOG, Western SOG, California SOG, Southern SOG. It was great. Like suddenly there's money for them to get together and talk about food systems. They were on the cutting edge of talking about food systems. And here was a way that we're going to build coalition. We're going to build networks. We're going to build coalitions. We're going to spread. It's not just farm viability. It's not just protecting the water supply or the soil. You know, it's not just, um, you know, how do you pay your farm workers and make a living? It's not just all we have uh, every corner in the city of New York is a you know, bodega or a gas station. It's not just, it's all of it together. And that was building a base. And so the dialogue gave us a way to infuse the SOGs with that. And in addition, with my focus on bringing in more national partners, I mean, I knew it wasn't just going to happen with the choir, you know, those few of us, who were really working in, on these issues, we had to extend it. So there was National Family Farm Coalition, National Farmers Union, NRDC, Sierra Club. Um, we got those groups um, at the in Washington to help get their to give us their sort of membership lists out. So we'd bring those people in. So we were really working to build a coalition and a base of activism and the dialogue was very much about that. Now, some people might look at the dialogue as, well, this was a way that we'd come up with an issue agenda, um, which is true. But it was really uh, structurally in terms of building a movement. It was the block by block, brick by brick, working around the country of bringing people up to speed, giving them something to work on together, helping them understand that they're allies, not foes, um, and that there are a lot of good things that we can agree on. And, you know, I was talking to some of these young folks, the uh, organizers at NSAC, sharp, like smart, like uh, so incredible about this, and they wanted to know from me, like, what put things over the edge? I mean, we have a local food movement, okay? If you, if you subscribe to movement being something that's not in, your, it's out of your control. So the work on local food and sustainable farming that's got a social element, an environmental conservation element, and an economic element, that that was a huge organizing project that people had and it built this infrastructure so that when new tools like the internet came on, new interests like food scares and health, you know, the health reports would come out and these new, those things helped push it over the edge. It went over the cliff and it became the local food move. But I, I keep en emphasizing people who don't know, like, it was by design. It wasn't just evolution, cultural evolution. There are lots of evolutionary factors that contributed, but people worked hard to build those building blocks and design uh, new power structures and work to get to get them. So um, the dialogue was a good beginning of that. 
because there had already been quite a bit of progress made with the 90 Farm Bill yes. and then taken that to the next okay, level. Okay, so the progress of the 90 Farm Bill was not, was, there was, from my perspective, uh, MSOG uh, was, uh, and SAC as sort of an advocacy part of MSOG, was really good at doing the policy walking and right. the analysis. Okay, I shouldn't say walking, the analysis. and. Um, from that, there was outreach to other players around the country to develop some talking points on policy and uh, the seed of the dialogue was started. So like when I came on, the first thing I was handed was proceedings from discussions among these various groups about what we might look at in terms of policy to support, um, you know, sustainable food system. So, um, so what really amounts to, you came on more to the, for the field work to do it, to build the, in the field to build the yes, support. Yeah. Most of that. I mean, there was, we had to refine a lot of those policy options and we did that. So, so I came on to do this field thing. And when I came on, it was so clear. I remember Chuck saying to me, so we have Bird on the Hill, and we've got the campaign in the field. And you guys, go. <laughs> Take off. And Ferd and I were partners. We, you know, it'd be like Ferd have the Hill thing, and Ferd would always say, you know, Amy, we need to get pressure here. We need to, like, raise, get the, you know, I, it can't just be me on the Hill. I need this and everything. So without a formal arrangement, there was not formal arrangement except that Ferd and I were practically on the phone practically every day. We had no internet. We had no way to email. Um, and we built this thing, you know, and Ferd, you know, Ferd became on here in Washington, Ferd became the go-to person for policy analysis on what's possible. What's, you know, folks from USDA would ask him all this stuff and people in the field you know, here I am with, like, we're really building this thing out. I mean, we had the first real list ever on, we, you know, we're like, oh, we had to build a list. You know, I would keep, oh, where are all the co-ops, food co-ops? You know, they, at the time, there were a few farmer's markets. Those, all those farmer's markets, we got them in, you know, where are, you know, we even went as far as PTAs. You know, because food, school food's always been pretty bad. <laughs> so we really went out. We were like, let's get a lot. Let's broaden this thing out and then do the depth. So it was breadth and depth, building more high quality contacts on the targets. And so Ferd and I would go, we'd do these little road shows. And Ferd was like, not only in the Midwest anymore. And he went on and I. We had, uh, I know, there's a lot of stories I can get to, but um, getting back to your question, I wish I can. <laughs> well, I was just wondering where, you know, what, what Farm Bill, that particular effort was targeting. And we talked about that for the 95 Farm Bill. Okay. Yeah. I just have uh, interesting. We, I really believe that in that campaign, we achieved a benchmark, like a game changer and a benchmark that never going back to what we used to be 
This was during the Gingrich Congress. And every an anti-environmental measure was like, oh, you can't take, you know, you can't tell me what to do with the street in the backyard. You can't tell me what to do on the farm. You can't tell us how to spend our corporate money to do X, Y, and Z, you know. And there was this Gingrich Congress, and there we were winning on conservation issues. It was a cha- it was a huge, and it, I mean, it wasn't just on the external front that we won because we had built power. Okay, and that was understood. You don't beat Newt Gingrich's wave. I can't even remember what it, his whole. I had some slogan about takings, about not, you know, uh, um, some slogan about how the it's either the environment or the economy. But there it was, everybody recognizing that our advocacy won in the most anti-environmental Congress that we've seen. And I don't know how long, but, um, but also internally, Bert and I were like, Wow, we got something here. And it wasn't just me and for there was like amazing. I think of like some of the people working for the songs, Renee Robinson and you know, Lonnie was right there with us the whole time. She had become she and Chuck were co-chairs of the campaign, and Hal Hamilton was right up there, Michael Sly. We had this I remember we we had formed this like think tank. It was Kathleen, myself, Michael Sly, and Chuck, and Ferd, and uh, a couple of others, Hal Hamilton, and Mark Ritchie. And uh, we were like, the whole idea of the think tank was like how to push our work over the edge to become a movement. And we had these funny meetings, and we'd like look at each other and say, well, we're not free, you know? And we're we're actually doing this. We're actually we need more of what we're doing. And uh, we walked away and saying we well, we don't really need a think tank. You know we need to go get money to do more of what we're doing. Um, and there was a time not long after that where we went and we had partnered with there was a funder who had said to me and um, and Ferd in a meeting. I don't know Ferd was actually in that meeting, but. Chuck was obviously there and Lonnie who said, I'll give you $4 million um, to do this because we had, we knew that we were on the edge. We knew we were on the verge and we needed to do more. I mean, you know, there was momentum. We needed to fund that. And so we're like, okay, $4 million. So he said, here's 20,000 or something like that. 100,000, it was more like 20,000 <laughs> to put the plan together, which we had a plan, but to put a more refined budget together. And we did that and we had some great meetings and we had the plan and we were ready to go with it. And we all come to Michigan and we we're told, well, we're going to give this money to this man named D. Hawk, who you know, was the visa brainchild. (laughs) Uh, And he had this thing called the chaotic process, which is the marriage of chaos and order. 
And he picked like eight people to do all white to do this thing. And it had it was unrelated to the movement, to this the infrastructure we had, the advocacy we were doing, you know, the foundation and the grassroots, you know, and our golden job on the hill. So it was unrelated to that. It was unbelievable. So I know Shirley Sherrod, uh, we ended up like protesting beyond belief and got at least got Shirley to be a part of that. I don't know if you got to take Shirley, but anyhow, that was, uh, that was, there were quite a number of incidences where the funders were scratching their heads. I couldn't figure it out. I mean, this kind of organizing was happening on other issues. This is like, I've, I'd seen it. Like, this is what we're doing. We're building power, we're building alliances, we're building bridges, we're linking arms, we're getting all these, the fringes in because they're not really the fringes. They're part of the whole. And um, anyhow, there are other funders that the same kind of thing happened. Either they said that we weren't asking for enough money or we didn't have big enough vision or they wanted to see us map out how we were going to take over or, you know, and we were being real, like, you know, this is building blocks stuff. So there's interesting stories about that. So where are we <laughs> on your questions? Uh, the, the work of the, uh, the campaign, including how it ultimately translated then into bringing more power that could be used by FERD and the FERD folks working on the and Capitol Hill. Right. So <clears throat> understanding that we had to build a broader base, um, that was what had been missing for um, and needed. We knew that that worked in other, on other issues. And so we, ha we had to do... So when the dialogue had uh, gotten to a certain level and having an issue agenda, uh, A, we knew we didn't have a broad enough base to win. It was, you know, farmers advocating for farmers is a good thing. Um, but having others advocate for farmers, you know, people who cared about nutrition, uh, public health, Access, um, secure food security, uh, racial issues, um, other inequities. We needed more of of a broader base, and so <clears throat> the SOGS was one way to do that. And so we really helped the SOGS build within their regions more of a broader base. But we went after groups that hadn't previously. Been in. I remember having conversations with my steering committee, you know, Lonnie and uh, Ferd and Chuck and Hal and Michael and um, Therese was there at one point and Robinson and like some of these folks. And, and I was talking about the Community Food Security Coalition. I had reached out to the Community Food Security Coalition and said, join our effort, Farm Bill. We have to do this together. And they're like, how do they get on? You know, and I was like, well, I did the outreach <laughs> and they're hooked in and we're hooking, we're working together. Um, rural coalition, um, Lorette, you know, with the rural coalition, they had really done some great work in working with small NGOs 
on rural issues that weren't sort of the same um, uh, obvious sustainable agriculture issues that a lot of the a lot of the sustainable we'll just leave it at that. She had made a lot of inroads and in, with very diverse communities, Native Americans, other tribal folks, tribal folks that went beyond our borders, um, Lorette and the Rural Coalition. Right. And uh, I mean, at the same time, we had, for example, the Mississippi uh, Southern Cooperatives were part of the campaign. Right. They were also very much a part of making the Royal Coalition, putting the Royal Coalition together. And I was this always, had always been committed to working for racial equity, deciding we that here is another element we need to bring in. We're really going to make this principled, honest, value-driven, and broad. We need to include that. And it's not just for the for the effectiveness. It's also what we value. And, you know, I really believe in organizing. You've got to get to the heart of it. You've got to get to people's interests and value, not just economic interests. But so um, there was a number of outreach steps that we had done to build that out. And I think there was a lot of head scratching. What? How do these people get in here? How do these people? So, you know, at. In that point in my career, I was into, let's just get it. Let's get as much as we can. And while that was very sloppy, it made for a lot of advocacy on common issues. Because this was, the in some cases, this was the first time some groups were asked to weigh in with farmers or farmers asked to weigh in with social justice people. And I remember <laughs> drawing upon other contacts I had had when I had worked on other citizen action stuff, AFL and, you know, some of the racial equity groups and some of the citizen action groups. And they didn't understand that. Many of them very focused on, on a lot of cases, urban, because that's where a lot of, you know, the a lot of there's power and money there. Um, so helping to get those groups that might not otherwise take up food farm issues, take them up, at least weigh in. And that weighing in really gave a lot more weight to the advocacy. And, you know, there were times when Ferd would say, oh, you know, we got to get, how are we going to get this guy? And how are we going to get that guy? And we might have had nobody there. But with the help of the SOG organizers, which we had actually along the way, I don't know if I said this, we had gotten some funding. I went out to each of the SOGs to help them hire staff. I'm like, we got money for you to have policy staff. They'd hire policy staff. And I had like regional <laughs> field organizers and they worked for the, they worked for the campaign working for this uh, great advocacy on the Hill, but also if there was a place where we didn't have anybody, we'd go find them. And sometimes that meant calling my friends at AFL-CIO and saying, you know, what's, is, is there anybody on the Trades Council who we could contact? Um, or it was uh, talking to some of the folks I knew from Citizen Action. It's like, you know, social justice people there. And the SOGs did a great, it was a great way for the SOGs to 
recruit more uh, local community food uh, interest, farm interest, local economy folks into it. And that, you know, that whole thing just multiplied. And that's how uh, we were able. I mean, I could I don't remember the exact votes on particular things, but there were quite a number of votes where Ferd and I would be like, what are we going to, you know, uh, Ferd would tell me, here's where we need pressure. Okay, then we go out figure out how to um, apply pressure in those districts. And we'd bring those. And then those folks that came in, they stayed in. Um, It made it very messy when we came to the merger. Um, SAC had been a very formal and clear structure for MSOG. Um, And it had to be that way. It was, uh, and then there was the campaign, which was, scattered you know all over the you know we had a real focus on what we were working on but we just kept multiplying we had this giant database we had over 2000 established groups that were saying we had this you know I'm signing on to the campaign it was they signed on and said yes I want to receive action alerts yes I want to do advocacy you know we had a list of things they were going to do and of course it was a database nightmare figuring out how to but, you know, we divided those up. I picked people in the regions. I gave them those things. And we had always, ha- you know, we had a real focused work plan. But it was, there were a lot of people all over the place. And there was not a formal endorsement project, pros- uh, process. We did have issue committees. And those issue committees, uh, the same model, went over to NSAC. And that really helped those issue committees working deep on the policy analysis part. Uh, And from that policy analysis, we were able to take what the campaign would do is take that policy analysis. And with my grassroots team, figure out how do we say this in a language that's going to inspire action? Uh, We need to simplify the language, um, not dumb it down in any way make it in a form that could be picked up by the press, that could be easily repeated, that could be written in a postcard as easily, because back then we didn't have email, (laughs) Um, as easily, you know, and written in a letter. And it's going to echo the policy analysis. Then the policy in the the, uh, issue committees, and that was really advised by FERD. FERD was on all the issue committees. And uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, But there was the campaign very loose and on ever widening, uncontrolled, you know, the edges just kept going. And that was kind of an uncontrollable thing. And that made it extremely hard to manage the campaign. And I think um, that challenge in managing the campaign went on to become one of the challenges in keeping the campaign together. But um, it also presented NSAC with the challenge of NSAC needed to have a clear endorsement process, a clear what it means to be a member, what it means to uh, do advocacy together, united on an issue. So the togetherness and the united thing had been there 
the formality of it needed refinement. And um, it was always clear. I mean, right from the beginning, you know, when they hired me, it was clear that we had to have this grassroots thing to unite the Hill thing. And it was still clear that that was the model that was going to work. And that's why the campaign and SAC had to merge. Um, and when it became hard to manage the campaign further down the road after I had left, uh, a lot of the groups that were part of the SOGs had seen, wow, it had really worked with the campaign and SAC working together. Let's make that formal and let's see if we can get bird to work for all of us on the Hill and get a way so that those partners in the campaign can have a formal structure. And um, just to get it into the kind of the chronological framework, when did you leave then? Okay, uh, I left just after the turn of the century. You were with the campaign nine director nine yes. years. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it did change when I left. You know, uh, when I left, we had, when, the, when we got, I was originally hired just to work on the 95 Farm Bill. Then the, the idea was that this was going to end yeah. after the 95 Farm Bill. But we're all looking around and saying, why should we end this? You know, we got new things. This is a whole new wave. I mean, policy-wise, there is a menu of fantastic, small, fantastic programs to push the ball forward towards an agriculture that is going to feed us. These fantastic programs were the result of our work. And there were people who never had worked together who were like, liking, who were like, oh, farmers and and the conservation thing. Yeah, this is a no-brainer. Social justice? We're talking about social justice as like the foundation of the rural economy is agriculture. Like, and that's a, those are social justice issues. And everybody was like, why would we not continue with this? And so after the farm bill, we set up a more formal structure. Bill, out of bounds of being too formal, but we set up a more formal structure and continued our work. Um, and when I left, there was a different in le- difference in leadership style. Um, and so managing the campaign was challenging. And uh, Kathy Lawrence, who's very skilled at managing organizations, um, she had to, you know, rein it in a little bit. She took over. After. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but she had a different style. My training and um, MO in organizing is to really lift up. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to give give voices a loudspeaker. I wanted to lift up the voices of what was there. I remember going around all the time going to SOG meetings, SOG meetings after SOG meetings, year, month after month after month, just living out of a suitcase for years. And and them saying, so what are you going to say? And I'm like, "Your this is your campaign. You're going to say it. And lift up those voices. And we did that all over the place. So, um, and I, and Fern and I, I mean, we were a partner in that. And Kathy, you know, at the time, Fern was under pressure. There was, we had a uh, very tight 
informal arrangement the campaign and sack um and there were and it got because there were so many more people working on this there's they were beginning to have funding issues organizations had to make more clarity on what they were working on the age of the internet had hit there was uh because the campaign for the 95 Farm Bill was really in a campaign mode. It's like just like an election. When you're on a campaign, you throw it out there. You just keep throwing it out there. That was over. And it wasn't like throwing it out there anymore. It was like circling the troops a little bit. And so taking that external need with the internal of having a different style of organizing, um, the campaign changed a little bit, and um, following that, there was changes in how the organic program was dealt with with the campaign. It was decided to take that out of the campaign. Um, but, you know, the organic program was, you know, there's another, um, just like many other issues, a great story of how we took on organic in the campaign. It was, there was, I wasn't very big from my perspective. Uh, desire uh, for uh, what to do about organic because, as we know, the organic um, uh, label was just, you know, authorized. And it's like, what is this going to be? And a lot of people didn't want to go there. And I just knew we have to do go there. There's so, first of all, a lot of our people are in it. But second of all, you know, there's got to be integrity in this. And this is a part of sustainable agriculture. It's not all a sustainable agriculture, but this is a really important part. So we took it on and we launched that great campaign. I remember I had hired my very good friend, Leona Hoods, on to help me, like, you know, on an administrative level. And she's a great organizer. It quickly gave her more responsibility and said, you're going to chair the organic committee. And we devised this campaign to get sewage sludge to ban from the organic label, sewage sludge, irradiation, um, and pesticides. I, I can't remember. What were the big three? GMO. No GMO, no sewage sludge, and no irradiation. And it, we knew that there was a lot of no pesticides. There had to be, obviously, uh, organic materials. You know, there was a lot of work to implement the on off of the organic food production act so um kathleen came on kathleen became part of this and uh we went ahead and waged this is again you know in this conservative congress we well this wasn't a congressional thing but we, we there was some congressional oversight on this but we won those three that was like critical and also the right and part of that was also there was more detail in the policy, I don't without getting too analytical here, but there had to do with independent certifiers and everything. And all those independent certifiers were joining the campaign. And we want, you know. So anyhow, that was So that was all happening as the, the Organic Act passed in nineteen ninety, but it wasn't until two thousand one, two thousand two that the final rules finally came about and so your organizing was trying to keep those yes. bad things off the... Right, but we won. We won steps yeah. along the way. And the first, right. you, no one thought we could do it, is to keep GMOs out of the organic and irradiation. I mean, there was so much uh, 
anti-science out there about oh GMOs and irradiation, you know, was, right. that was, and sewage sludge and um, you know, I remember some of these fantastic farmers, Liz Henderson and some of the dairy farmers who didn't want you know GMO alfalfa, they were doing organic dairy and all over you know in the Midwest and. I just remember so many of these farmers coming, stepping up and saying this, some of them not even organic, but saying, you know, we have to have integrity. People have to believe what in this. And like, it was, it was just amazing that that was just one. I just have to say the whole thing is so amazing is seeing, especially these farmers step up out of their, out of the field and into an arena that, you know, was so, foreign to them but once they got plugged into understanding their power uh really getting it's like being very good at it and really um the goodwill of these people i mean doing social change work and all these different issue arenas in the sustainable ag movement these are like the kindest create most creative People, I just love them. You know, there's um, something very special about people who feel connected to growing food, the soil, the air, the clean water, the, you know, I know I grow food. My favorite thing in the world is to grow food to feed people. It's like there's this nourishment, this thing. And um, so I know. So that's so hard. The uh, then that you then you left around two thousand two or so, and then and then were you oh were you doing the Northeast uh, Sustainable Ag Working Group, the Northeast SOG, while you were doing the campaign, yeah, or no, did you, no, you we, left for a while and came back to do that? Is no, that, I was not doing the SOG. I was doing the campaign the whole time. Yeah. I was with the campaign, and we had. You know, Liana, who was um, the assistant, um, my assistant, assistant coordinator, whatever we called her, director, whatever. Um, she worked part time for NISOG and, you know, we were housing NISOG's database, the list that they were building. And we were doing that with the other SOGs, too, and building this list. And But um, I was not. No, I was just doing the campaign. And after I left, I went and did other, I did a local land use, you know, campaign. I went and did other campaigns. Um, yeah. And then you, and then after, oh, when did you come into the Northeast song? Okay. After the, uh, when, after the Obama won in 80 and 2008, there was the merger during 2008, there's a merger. So immediately after that campaign, I came and did a little bit of consulting with NSAC. There was, so this is probably something we haven't talked about. No. There was fallout. I had started to get on this, but so I came to sort of help tease out some of what was going on right. with that merger um, under the guise of training. <laughs> um, and I did some of that, but it was time for everybody else to do it. So at that time, uh, Kathy Roof of Nisog, she had started Nisog and was running it. Uh, she and I were very good friends because she and I had worked, you know, I had done a lot to help Nisog during the campaign. She hired me on as a consultant uh, to do policy work for Nisog. Uh, and that was in 2009. 
And since then, I've been working with Nissan. I, you know, I've had some other consulting projects here and there. I did some consulting with the New England Farmers Union, um, and there were other collaborative efforts that we got funding for. So the fallout, yeah. uh, I wouldn't call it really, I shouldn't call it a fallout. Well, there would be a consequence. There were consequences. Um, and one of the things I had done in the campaign was put together a diversity committee, a committee to address racial equity in our work and in the, in the work that we're doing for the food system. Not so much racial equity in the food system, but how do we build more racial equity into our work, be it in the food system or in how we are working together. And, um, you know, there were people scratching their head and what, you know, what, you know, but I knew we had to do this. And so in that effort and bringing, we reached out to new folks that felt their connection to the campaign was through this work on diversity. Um, and when the campaign and SAC merged, that got lost. And there were people saying, well, what about this? And what about that? What about our issues? What about our connection? And this was a time when SAC really, uh, you know, maybe too much, but really had to be more formalized. And many of these groups couldn't afford the membership. They felt that they weren't represented in SAC. Um, there wasn't a, uh, there weren't people who were carrying that torch that were now in the formal sack and sack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember in that when I, um, I remember having discussions with Amy Whitteman, who was doing that, and then um, about what needed to be set up and how we could readdress this. And some of that fell through in the transition from, Amy into the new director, but there was uh, no longer this sort of we all have a place at this table, which the campaign had. I mean that that's the way I organize. Everybody has something to offer here. There's not one, you know, and there was no longer a place for them at the table. And I understand why. Part of NSAC's power, it's is it's structural clarity because we were no longer a campaign and SAC was now an and why could, formal why organization. There, you said they couldn't afford it. Did, what, did, how much did NSAC charge? Or what? I, it wasn't so much. I, th I don't think so much it was the fees. It was what it meant um, that you had to go through some who I, I think you need to like I understand you're feeling Lorette tomorrow. I think you need to ask yeah. ask some of those folks. But what they brought to me was that there was a disenfranchisement. There was like, we're not wanted at the table, and there's not really a formal place for us. In order to go to that formal place, we can't be who we are. You know, um, it's just like the campaign couldn't become a formal member of another coalition because we didn't really have that formality, that kind of process become that you know when you set up a 
for better or worse, a bureaucratic infrastructure. I don't mean bureaucratic in a bad way, a formal infrastructure. Um, there's rules and triggers and, and they looked at that and said, you know, maybe this is a point of departure. And there's still fallout from that. Yeah. Um, I think that NSEC, I understand now, has been, now has a diversity. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, oh, yeah. Section or whatever, but uh, yeah. priority. Yes. And, uh, and that's coming out to resolve. Yes, I have to say that the NSAC Diversity Committee has just come so far. I'm so excited about the advances that it's making within the coalition and what that's going to mean for what happens in the advocacy work. And, you know, really the some of the folks that were in the campaign that are part that didn't give up when the campaign became the national SAC. They didn't give up on um, Margaret. There she was, like battling her way through, and yeah, um, and um, some other folks. <laughs> I'd like to say their names now, but I'm not. Okay. <laughs> I have to go back. So, uh, but so they are. They have carried that torch. So thank you to thanks to some very strong leaders not giving up on this and continuing that torch from the campaign into NSAC. So while there may be a perception that there was a huge fallout, in reality, there were some groups and some individuals that felt alienated during the merger. There are also several who stayed on and have brought us to this point where now we have a whole assessment about race and equity in terms of the work that NSAC is doing. And it's so fantastic. It's. Well, that's great. Yeah. I'm glad to get that mm -hmm. perspective and yeah. that you explained yeah. that in, in more detail. So that's good. Well, I want to um, move a little bit now towards maybe um, the future here, you know, like uh, what are you doing now? What are the priorities for, for Northeast saw? And then, Taking that, sending that to how's that? You're a member with the uh, with NSAC, right? As, as yes. the Northeast Fog. Yes. And so, what do you see as priorities? What are some issues, kind of maybe in the short term, things like crop insurance stuff, for example? And but in the longer picture, what do you see? Well, uh, let me first start by saying um, the programs that uh, NSAC the campaign and SAC and NSAC have worked on uh, over the last few decades, the sustainable ag programs, some of them small, some of them kind of medium, <laughs> but still pretty small. These fantastic programs that have helped the proliferation of farmers markets that have helped people get more local food, you know, that have helped farmers uh, diversify their crops that have helped protect water. These programs, um, they have an enormous impact on the Northeast, where the kind of agriculture we have is much smaller scale. Um, we, ha we depend on smaller scale agriculture for our ag economy. And we, you know, grow there's 
no farmer in the Northeast can really make it uh, with one or two crops. You must diversify both in terms of what you grow and your markets and things like that. So that enabling some of helping along that diversification and that sort of more uh, market um, options and um, linking the health and food desires in communities to what that means for agriculture uh, has a huge impact on the Northeast, you know, for various reasons, food, smaller food roots and the kind of agriculture we have. So um, that means a lot for how we're about moving forward and what we do with NISOG. Um, and and NISOG, uh, we do, it's a lot about food systems. It's a systems approach. Um, and taking that systems approach, the systems that go from, you know, soil to plate to waste, um, all along those way, that, that way, as NISOG is very good at looking at that as a regional, as a people, how are we going to meet our food needs? How are we going to have clean water? And how are we going to address the social issues? All of that lends itself to policy handle. And so we're going to continue to work on those important policies as we uh, go. We're in a crisis situation. There are not enough farmers. There's not enough. We lose, we're losing so much farmland. There's not enough um, saving the farmland to get farmers on there and then have farm viability. You know, it's a huge problem, particularly in the Northeast. We're just losing all that. We, Nisog did a great study about what the build out in the next 50 years would be on the food system and where is the best farmland what are the uh, nutritional and calorie needs for our people you know how could we meet our food needs and the you know we could do it but it's almost too late in terms of losing farmland to development and we need uh, local state regional and national policies to protect that farmland and help make farming viable farming viable so you had asked me like what what are like critical issues here is how can a farmer do what he or she needs to do including paying the staff a living wage so often that would mean a farmer is not making a living wage it's like, how do we do that? And in the Northeast, we've been like really doing so much to bring the the farm worker and the food chain workers to talk with the producers. Everybody is on the same page and wanting it, but they can't figure out. No, it's not that they can't figure out. It's that there's not the political will to make it work. And if we, and so on the one hand, we have, a farm policy that upholds a very bad structure of agriculture. The structure of agriculture is such that we keep losing farmers. We lose farmland. And there's a concentration of very poor, very bad agriculture 
which doesn't address climate change, it doesn't help with people who have need drinking water, the continuation of soil, you know, grow, soil that we could grow in, um, or, a, a, you know, a wit of concern about social justice. That structure of agriculture is upheld by our policy. And so uh, we need to take, turn it on its head, because really to have a food system that's going to feed people and be able to carry it into the future, uh, we have to turn that on its head and make the uh, sustainable, like a food system for the future, the priority, instead of upholding this um this structure of agriculture, which is really, it's only leading us to doom. It's just like we knew climate change was an issue. 20 years ago, people were talking about it. 10 years ago. Oh, we must do this. And now we're like at this crisis thing. Um, it's the same way with the food system. Well, what you're saying is consistent with what I've been hearing from several people, including, including for Hefner, that uh, while we've been making progress, you can look through this list of accomplishments, and they are real and they are significant, but the structure of agriculture, the thing that's still operating out there that's diminishing the number of at least medium-sized farmers, is a growth in farmers at one level, but they tend to be the smaller ones, and an increasing concentration of the wealth in agriculture um, has not been uh, adequately dealt with at all, no. really. Uh -uh. It's the It's the same story one percent the, the wealth in agriculture is increasingly being concentrated in that upper echelon and the rest of agriculture is being lost i mean there's gains you know we have more young farmers the gains are small compared to this huge thing but i just quote ralph nader here i, I went to a conference with vananda shiva and ralph nader recently and he is, as a political scientist, it really is only going to take 1% of the people demanding that change. And once we reach that 1% of demand, we can make the changes. And he's able to show issue after issue how that happened. So there's hope that we can do it, but we have to reach that critical mass to, to, uh, to work on it. So while I think it is, you know, we're looking down the cliff. Um, we know some of these solutions. We know a lot of what needs to be happening. It's just like Bernie Sanders saying, we, we know we can't continue with the way things have been going, but there is another way. You know, we need to spread the wealth out. We need to decide what is our design for agriculture. I mean, we have those answers all over the country. The SOG started doing it and now Many of them, like Nisog, are still doing it. And many groups like Land Stewardship Project, we're like, we know a lot of what needs to happen. Um, and we just need to create the political will to make that change. It's not that much of a radical change, really. So are, are you uh, kind of winding this up here? Are you uh, going to stay on the organizing path? Are you going to keep on, keep on keeping on? Yes, I am. Under, to bring about that 1% one, one change? I am, I am. Fire in my belly. I'm a tree hugging dirt worshiper, <laughs> but I got that fire in my belly. And um, while my favorite thing to do is to be out on the farm farming, 
I'm going to keep on uh, raising hell and working for change. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. I've already said thank you to you, but is there anything else you want to say about uh, organizing and your work with the younger people and that sort of thing? I want to say that none of the changes that we've worked on, especially in agriculture and food systems, but also across the board, any, that they came about by design. It was the personal communicating, the relationship building, the listening, finding common ground, the kind of things that take relate that take communication skills. You don't find that on the internet. The internet was not, even though like this explosion, like, you know, the local food movement took off during this work. And the internet was just one tool and it wouldn't have pushed us over the cliff into being a movement had not we that foundation of relationship building and bridge building, going out beyond the margins, taking stands, organizations trusting each other. You know, you could be the expert on that. You can be the expert on this, but we're going to work together to try and win it. You know, um, um, resource sharing, you know, all about like connectedness rather than separateness. Um, and not taking for granted uh, those personal relationships, which you can't have via the internet. Um, so what I would want to say is the most important thing in that organizing is listening, sharing, building relationships, and going beyond the edges of what seems the most problem to what might be possible. This has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs.